Chapter fifty six of the Grell Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. The Grell Mystery by Frank Frost. Chapter fifty six. A deprecating smile came to the superintendent's lips. Robert Grell was studying him curiously. He recognized that he owed much to the blue eyed, square faced detective. Yes, I think I am at least entitled to that, he echoed. Foyle gave a shrug. "'As you like, gentlemen, you once complained, Sir Hilary, that I talked like a detective out of a book. This kind of thing makes me feel like one, except that, in this case, I cannot claim much credit. I only used common sense and perseverance.' "'Let us have it,' said Grell. He was beginning to be his own masterful self. "'Very well. It has all been a matter of organisation. You will remember that, in dealing with an intricate case, no man is at his best working alone.' However able or brilliant a detective is, he cannot systematically bring off successful coups single-handed, outside a novel. He is a wheel in a machine. Or perhaps a better way to put it would be to say he is a unit in an army. He is almost helpless alone. There are many people who believe that a detective's work is a kind of mental sleight of hand. By some means he picks up a trivial clue which inevitably leads, by some magical process, to the solution of the mystery. I do not say that deductions are not helpful, but they are not all. A great writer once compared the science of detection to a game of cards, and the comparison is very accurate. A good player can judge, with reasonable certainty, the cards in the hands of each of his opponents, but he can never be absolutely certain, especially when he is unacquainted with his opponent's methods of play. Detection can never be reduced to a mathematical certainty until you level human nature, so that every person in the same set of circumstances will act in exactly the same way. Like doctors, we have to diagnose from circumstances, and even the greatest doctors are wrong at times. Specialist knowledge has often to be called in. When this case commenced, specialist knowledge had to be enlisted to fix our facts, and the one general difficulty which arose, as always, was that we did not know which facts might prove important. As an instance, I may say that the fingerprints on the dagger were wholly misleading, and might have brought about a miscarriage of justice. It was necessary that we should collect every fact we could about the murder, whether great or small. That was one phase for the investigation where organisation was necessary. A man working alone would have taken months, perhaps years, in this preliminary work. Then luck favoured us. Our records, collected of course by organisation, contained a portrait of a man strikingly like you, he nodded to Grell, and a comparison of fingerprints told us that the dead man was not you, but Harry Goldenberg. Previously, the time of the murder had been fixed by Professor Harding as between ten and twelve. It was our business to find out who had been with Harry Goldenberg at that time. Among those persons was the guilty one. "'I can't see how that helped you at all,' said Grell, his brows bent. "'In this way, and as a negative test, the alibi is a commonplace of the criminal courts. Every person on whom clues might ultimately rest would be eliminated from the investigation, if it could be proved beyond doubt that they were elsewhere at the time. You must remember that we had not only to find the murderer, but to produce evidence that would satisfy a jury that we were right. But we worked, first of all, from such main facts as we had. You were missing, Ivan was missing, a mysterious veiled woman was missing, there was the pearl necklace that you had bought as a wedding present for Lady Eileen, there was the strange dagger used in the murder, Murder, there was the miniature of Lola on the dead man. These were the chief heads. There were scores of minor things to be dealt with. The matter was complicated, too, by the dead man's clothes. In the pockets there were your personal belongings. A natural but erroneous assumption was that they were your clothes. There is not much scope for individuality in evening dress. 
I confess I was misled and puzzled at first, but a little thought afforded the explanation, and, in fact, it would have been cleared up automatically in any event by the examination of the garments. Now, subtlety may be an admirable thing, but it can be overdone. I have never believed that, because a certain thing seems obvious, it is necessarily wrong. It was reasonably certain that one or all of the missing persons had knowledge of what had happened. It was extremely probable that one of them was guilty. Our starting point was to find them. That was where organisation came in. The miniature helped me to bluff Sir Ralph Fairfield into an admission that it was the portrait of Lola of Vienna, and I purposely showed it to some newspaper men on a pretext." One of them commented on the likeness to the Princess Petrovska, who was staying at the Hotel Palatial, and I at once telephoned to the hotel and discovered that she was supposed to have left at ten on the evening of the murder. A reference to the St. Petersburg police gave us a few more facts about her. She became a possibility as the veiled visitor. The fingerprints on the dagger, although we should have adopted a different method had we known what we now know, helped us to narrow the investigation, for they apparently, and actually by luck, settled the innocence of several people who might have been suspected. Lady Eileen Meredith came to me with a story that seemed to implicate Sir Ralph Fairfield. There seemed just a possibility that she was right, for I could conceive jealousy might be a motive, though of course there was so far nothing to explain why the master of the house and his valet should take to flight. I took Sir Ralph's fingerprints by a ruse, and to me that seemed fairly satisfactory proof that he was not the man. Of course, I was then presuming that the fingerprints were those of the murderer. Then I received information that Ivan, and a man my informant took for Goldenburg, had been seen at Victoria Station on the night of the murder. I managed to find Ivan, and, by a threat, got a partly formed opinion confirmed. He knew that the murdered man was not Grell. I took from him the pearls that were to have formed a wedding present, and let him go after taking his fingerprints. My idea was to have him watched, for I felt confident that he was in touch with his master, whom I believed to be the murderer. But it was not enough to follow one line. We used the fact of the striking similarity of Grell and Goldenberg to advertise for the former under the name of the latter. The mere fact of throwing the description broadcast was calculated to make any attempt to escape more difficult. Meanwhile, we were making inquiries about everyone concerned in the case by cooperation of foreign police forces, and particularly with the help of Pinkerton's agency in the United States. It was all organisation, you see. The individual counted for little. The first attempt to communicate with Fairfield failed, not through the working of any miracle on our part, but by patient watching. I stole a note from Fairfield, which gave us something to act upon in the East End. Remember, the immediate object of our search was Robert Grell, not necessarily for the murderer. Do you follow? I think I do, answered Grell. You wanted at least an explanation from me. Precisely. Well, on top of that, we got a typewritten letter informing us of the kidnapping of Waverley. That letter was important, for its contents showed that we were up against people who were absolutely reckless. We were able to trace, too, a typewriting machine as having been sold recently to a man named Israel in Grave Street. There were fingerprints on the letter, and they corresponded to those on the dagger. As a matter of fact, I recently found out that the letter had been written on paper given by you. You had torn a half-sheet from an old letter, and I can only presume it was one that had been written to you by Lady Eileen Meredith, for they were her fingerprints. We paid a surprise visit to Grave Street, and although we were unable to lay our hands on any one of much importance to the investigation, we hit on the cipher with which it was intended to communicate with your friends. Now we had already, as you know, taken every precaution to stop supplies. It was obvious that sooner or later money would be wanted, and we rigorously watched the persons who were likely to be applied to. Up to this point, circumstantial evidence pointed clearly to you, he nodded towards Grell, as the murderer. Something of the sort happened, for Lola went to Lady Eileen, and we were able to lay hands on her. 
but we failed to get her identified as the veiled woman who had visited the house in Gravener Gardens. I will confess that at that time I never had any suspicion that she was the actual murderess. We had no adequate excuse for detaining her after she handed the jewels over, with an explanation endorsed by Lady Eileen Meredith. I had taken her fingerprints, and they did not agree. It was palpable that the attempt to baffle us was being shrewdly organised. I tried a different way of getting information, an attack, so to speak, by the back door. I enlisted the help of a criminal. He was acting more or less blindly, but by his help we stopped the burglary affair that was planned. In the pocket of one of the men we arrested, we discovered two advertisements, worded so as to convey a cipher key without exciting suspicion. We had them inserted, and naturally arranged to keep an eye on the office, for the word tomorrow suggested one to be inserted the following day. There is always wisdom in gaining the confidence of those concerned in a case if you can. I was trying hard to establish friendly relations with Lady Eileen and Sir Ralph Fairfield. Each was difficult to handle, but with Sir Ralph I succeeded to some extent. I used him to try and learn something from her. She realised that the cipher was known, and went to the newspaper office to try and stop the insertion of the advertisement that might enable us to find Grell. Of course she failed, and we got a message which had been handed in by Petrovska. One of our men followed her. We deciphered the message, and it enabled us to discover your hiding place on the river, but the business was muddled and you got away. We found the sheath of the knife used in the murder among other belongings you left behind. By the way, we understand that that dagger had belonged to Harry Goldenberg. How came it to be lying about your room? Grell shook his head. That is a mistake. The dagger was mine. It is possible that he had a similar one. Yes, that is possible. But in the event, the point does not matter much. What was more important was that we had driven you out of a secure hiding place. Meanwhile, Pinkerton's had been hard at work on the other side of the Atlantic, and many episodes of your private life were minutely examined. Their detectives, it was, too, who had discovered that Goldenberg and Petrovska had in some way been associated with you. What they found out pointed to blackmail. Here appeared an adequate motive for you to murder Goldenberg. Grell tapped impatiently on the table, but did not interrupt. Heldon Foyle went on. We could not blind ourselves to the fact that you were not the type of man who would commit an ordinary crime under stress of temptation, but homicide is in a class by itself. You might have committed murder. Indeed, there was the strongest possible assumption that you had done so. You will observe that there was nothing miraculous in what we did. One step led to another in natural sequence. On the barge we got the letter that led to the tracing of Ivan at the gambling house in Smike Street. We knew your finances were cramped. We were, as opportunity offered, limiting your helpers so that we might force you to show yourself. That is what happened. You went to Sir Ralph Fairfield and succeeded in dodging our men, so far. It was Fairfield's servant who gave you away. He came to Scotland Yard, and in my absence was taken away by Sir Ralph. When I returned, I arranged to get Sir Ralph out of his chambers for a time, sufficient to allow me a talk with his servant. I then bluffed some idea of your mission out of Sir Ralph. I found you had been refused money. You had already applied once to Lady Eileen Meredith for money. There seemed a chance that, in your desperate state, you might do so again. I went to Berkeley Square. Lady Eileen had gone out. I got into her sitting-room on pretext of waiting for her. On the fire were fragments of a note from you, and I was able to make clear several words. That made me determined to examine her desk. I found a cheque-book, but the used counterfoils were not in her handwriting, nor did the amounts and the people to whom they were payable seem those that would be found in a personal cheque-book of hers. I searched the blotting-pad and was able to make out the words Burley and £200. The assumption I drew from that was startling enough, but it was still more startling to discover on the blotting-pad a fingerprint which, as far as my recollection went, corresponded with those on the dagger. 
Up to that moment, the possibility that Lady Eileen might be the guilty person had not occurred to me, but now a rearrangement of the circumstances, apart from the fingerprint, began to throw a new light on the matter. It would explain much if you, Mr. Grell, were shielding Lady Eileen. I could think of no motive, however, and resolved to hold the matter over for the time being. Even if I had good cause for my suspicion, it was still essential to find you. You obviously held the key to the mystery.' We found out that you had met Lady Eileen and driven to Kingston, not by shadowing, for our man failed there, but by getting hold of the cabman who drove you. With the aid of the provincial police, we were able to trace you to Dalehurst Grange. I feared that you might be on the alert for any step taken by Mr. Green, and so acted by myself in getting into the house. Your manner, when I confronted you, impressed me favourably. It was not that of a guilty man. But I could not let an opinion bias me, for, in spite of everything, you might still have been guilty. There was a great possibility that you were an accessory. One thing struck me. Your walk was uncommonly like that of Harry Goldenberg. Now, people may be uncommonly like each other in face and figure and be unrelated, but I have noticed often that little peculiarities of gait run through a family." I had thought you might be a relative of Goldenberg's, but not till that moment did I become certain of it. You will remember that I put some questions that might have seemed offensive. I wanted you to lose your temper. It was conceivable that you might blurt out something. I found it very difficult to place Petrovska. While you were asleep, I thought the matter over and formed a hypothesis. I put several questions to you later, and found that a woman had visited your house with Goldenberg. That was Lola Petrovska. Now, if she was not the veiled woman who came later, who was? For the sake of my theory, I put her as Lady Eileen. Very well. Lola and Goldenberg had visited you together, but she had assisted you since the murder, and she was hardly likely to do that if she was on friendly terms with the blackmailer and knew you had killed him. So it came to my mind that you might have used her in an attempt to get the compromising letters, and then it occurred as a remote possibility that she might, after all, be the guilty person, but to assume that it was necessary to explain away the fingerprints, for they were not hers. All this led to the supposition that the dagger had been handled by someone after the crime. That person must have been Lady Eileen, therefore she must have been the veiled woman, you see? But this was supposition, which a single fresh fact would destroy. I held on to you, and Lola walked into our trap. An interview with Ivan cleared up some of the vague points in the story and confirmed my theory. You will understand that I was ready to drop it the moment it failed to fit the facts. Indeed, to make assurance more sure, I sent a story out to the papers, which I felt sure would convey to Lady Eileen Meredith that you were in great peril, and which, if she was guilty, might induce her to confess to save you. It had an effect rather different to that which I intended. Your clumsy attempts to take the guilt on yourself made me more sure than ever of your innocence. This morning we laid a trap for Lola. She was suddenly aroused out of her sleep, and I surprised her into what amounted to an admission of guilt. Grell rose from his chair with extended hand. "'I rather believe that I have made a fool of myself,' he said. "'You have done a great deal more than you adopt credit for. "'I cannot thank you now, but later. "'I suppose I am at liberty now. "'I must see I Lady Eileen at once.' "'You will have to give evidence at the inquest,' said Thornton. "'That is all. "'The step this woman has taken will save us all a great deal of trouble. "'Of course, what Mr. Foyle has told you is entirely confidential.' "'Of course.' "'Lady Eileen is here if you would care to see her now,' said Foyle. "'Will you come with me?' Grell followed the superintendent along the corridor. At the door of his own room, Heldon Foyle stopped and knocked. "'Here you are,' he said. Robert Grell opened the door. End of chapter 56 And end of The Grell Mystery by Frank Froust